We are in a series uh, called The History of Our Witness. Uh, we have kind of discerned that Christians tend to have short-term memory, and we forget that we actually have a 2,000-year history of witness. That uh, we, is, That's our roots, and, uh, and so we're not isolated in our cultural moment. We actually have a history. And we have tended in recent years, I think, as the church to see witness as a command. When Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, we have tended to receive that as a, you need to go do something. And the contention we've made through this series is that Jesus has actually just bestowed an identity on the church. He doesn't say, go do it. He says, you are it. (laughs) By nature of being in relationship to me, you are a witness. And so he's saying, um, this is a divine choice. You will be. And what we've seen in the book of Acts is not people living under the duty of a command to go do something, but living in a relationship where they're spontaneously moved out by God's Spirit to live out the kingdom among a people, that they are a body of people sent on a mission. And so witness is an identity and it is because they know Jesus. And so what we've seen is this, the, the story has unfolded. It began in, with the church uh, being founded with the Spirit coming and the pre- preaching of Peter, where Peter preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And then in chapter 3, we've seen the Jerusalem community. And we've spent a few weeks just looking at what the community was like in Jerusalem and some of the speed bumps that they experienced as well as the power of God in their midst. And then this week, we're going to begin to look at how the gospel goes beyond Jerusalem. As Jesus said at the beginning of Acts, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. And so now the gospel's going out beyond its uh, original location, if you will. And so we're going to see how the narrative takes us out past the borders and boundaries that had existed up to that point. And so last week, we were introduced to some Greek-speaking widows who were being neglected, and so the church realized we need to raise up leaders uh, and diverse leaders who understand the culture that's being neglected. And so we saw these seven men chosen who were marked by God's Spirit in their life and wisdom. And so there were these qualified leaders, and what we saw was that ministry in the local church had to hold on to the tension of words, preaching, and deed, action, right? And so these seven folks embodied both, that they were people who served the practical needs of the body, and they also bore witness through what they said. And so we're going to get into that uh, today. So Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, earlier, in chapter, uh, a few verses earlier, he was described as, uh, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now he's def- defined or described as full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed uh, with Stephen. Okay, uh, and let me read verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so Stephen is described as this person who's marked by the reality of God in his life. And uh, it, it says that there's a group of people 
who have a problem with what he's doing. And so this group of people called the Synagogue of Freedmen is most likely a group of Jews who had at one point been slaves to the Roman Empire. They had been sl- slaves, and now they are freedmen, right? And their children are children of freedmen, right? And so it's a whole synagogue of people who have had a similar cultural bond. But they had been slaves, and now they are free people. Uh, and so now this group of people is taking issue with what Stephen's doing and saying. And the text says that they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, Again, this is Luke taking us back to what Jesus had already promised, that he would send the Spirit, Luke chapter 12, and that, he would, that the people who had his Spirit would possess wisdom. That's Luke chapter 21. And so what is happening is the gospel is coming, and it's making its, making its own stand. Right? They, they can't actually argue or withstand his wisdom because the gospel is the wisdom of God, and it makes sense on its own. And so they conspire to lie about Stephen and his character and his message. And this is what the text tells us. Verse 11. They secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And when they stirred up the people and the elders uh, and the scribes, they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. This is the religious leadership group of the day. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak against, excuse me, this holy place, that is the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that is the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like, that, like the face of an angel. And so what's happening here? Uh, Jesus had been understood in his day as speaking against the temple. By that, he had actually just said he was there to be the true embodiment of all that the temple was meant to be. In an ancient world, a temple was where you came in contact with the transcendent. It was where you came in contact with God. And so he's said throughout his ministry in symbolic ways and figurative ways and quite literally that he was all that the temple was ever meant to be. If you wanted to meet God, he looks like Jesus, right? You've just met him in Jesus, and that was the point he was making. And so it was a critique that they were not willing to bear, because if you possess the place where God dwells, you have control, and therefore you can also manipulate. But if you want to know God, Jesus is saying, then you meet him in me. And I am all that the temple was ever meant to be, and that felt like a threat. And so they perceived that Stephen was also threatening the validity of their way of life and their understanding of how God worked. And so it says that throughout all of this accusation, he still resembled like an angel. It takes us back to Exodus 34 when Moses had interceded for the people of Israel. I don't know if you know this story, but what happened was people of Israel had been set free from slavery. They were free people. And now they resort to idolatry in the wilderness. They say, let's take off our jewelry, boil it down, and make a calf, and say, that that's the God that delivered us from Israel. And so God's like pretty mad. It's like betrayal and adultery on the honeymoon, right, essentially. And so he's flaming hot and tells Moses all about his feelings and how he wants to quit on Israel. Moses says, yeah, you can't do that. You made a promise. 
uh, and um, please don't, right? Like, and so, uh, and when Moses leaves the presence of God, he's glowing, right? He's like got the, you know, glow going on. And so he looks like a, an icon or something. He's, got, he's radiant. And it said that they had to cover his face because the glory was, was actually fading. So they, they cover him up. And so when you see Stephen looking like an angel, we're saying he looks like he's been with God. He looks like he's been with God. So the, there's three things I want to pull out of uh, this text this morning. We're going to cover all the way through the beginning of chapter 8. And the, the first thing that I want to tell you this morning is that Stephen's story tells us something about our posture as a witness. They, again, Jesus has said, you are witnesses. It's not optional. The issue is accuracy. And so he says, this story tells us something about our posture as people who are witnesses to the reality of Jesus. Okay, are you with me? Here's what it says. Um, I think the fact that he's under pressure like this and his face is like that of an angel, I think tells us that our posture as witnesses is not anxious. That we are to bear an unanxious posture as we relate the good news to other people. Stephen's radiating God, God in his presence. He's just radiating out that he's been with God. Uh, in fact, that is part of the promise of the new covenant. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I don't have it on the screen today. I'll read it though, and, or you could turn there. 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Keep going where uh, the promise of the new covenant is superior to the old promise, right? That because of the Spirit of God in our life, uh, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, so not like Moses, we behold the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And the point is this, that if you are focused on Jesus, you will become like Jesus. We behold his glory and we grow from glory to glory. We become more and more like Jesus. And what this is saying is that our witness is not to be an obnoxious witness. Like Obnoxious people are anxious people usually. Right? Because they need a particular result to happen. And so our witness is not to be angry, nor impatient, nor anxious, or obnoxious. But rather it's a witness that's at peace with the fact that we are not in control. We don't have control of the outcomes of our witness. All we are responsible for is our own witness, not the results of our witness. Are you with me? So, Stephen knows probably pretty full well that he can't change the, the outcome of the scenario, that he's about to die. And yet he's radiating that he's been with God. He's unanxious. He's not trying to control the outcome. When we are anxious in our witness, it communicates to the world that what we believe is a burden, actually. And it's somehow a burden we should shoulder, and if they believe like we do, they'll now be shouldering the same burden. That's what anxiety communicates in our witness. It's like pouring gas into fresh drinking water. It ruins both the witness. And, and so the world has plenty of anxiety, I would say to you. It has plenty of anxiety, and it has plenty of people selling something that's a burden. And f the, the, the feeling, or, or there's plenty of people as well in the world who feel the burden of selling something. Um, 
And so, and no worries, we're unanxious about crying babies, too. It's okay. Um, And so the world desperately needs a non-anxious presence, a people who are not anxious, but who know that Jesus is good and that he's loving and that he's actually ruling the world, and he has the outcomes. The world needs people who are not burdened by what they believe, but who offer a way of life that is not burdensome. And so my contention to you this morning is that Stephen helps us see the posture of a faithful witness. He's somebody who's being carried by grace, and his life is full of grace and power. Those two go together, by the way. Grace and power is about God's enablement, the divine enablement being demonstrated in a person who is not anxious. So we're, we're not responsible for what anybody else believes. We are responsible for what we believe. And if God is truly good and loving in our lives, we'll manifest that. Here's a quick caveat, though. Being non-anxious doesn't mean that we're never nervous when we share our faith or when we talk about Jesus. It, it just means that we're not defined by the response to our witness. Does that make sense? There's a big difference. Um, okay. What's next? Um, as we turn the corner into chapter 7, the high priest said, are these things so? Um, in other words, that you have spoken against the temple and that you have spoken against Moses, right? Now, keep in mind, for Jews, the temple is the epicenter of their entire world. It is the center of the universe, right? This is the place where God has chosen to meet his people, and Moses was the deliverer of God's people. He was the one who communicated God's way of life, the Torah, to Israel. And so, in other words, what Moses has done is he's, he's mediated a charter for Israel's way of life. And so to speak against Moses and the temple is basically to say, are you undermining everything that the Bible's ever said? Is it true? Is that so? And so Stephen says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you. Uh, then he went from the land of the Chaldeans, that's Babylon, and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there uh, into this land in which you are now living. And so here's what I'm going to do because chapter 7 is very long. And it's the longest speech in all of Acts. All right, We're not going to read every verse. I will summarize. So Stephen, however, he's responding to a criticism. Right? He's saying... I'm being accused of speaking against God's temple and against God's ways delivered through Moses. And so what we see in chapter 7 is something of the message of our witness. So we've seen the posture of our witness is not anxious, and the message of our witness now is about to unfold. And so he goes back to the beginning of Israel's story. Abraham is probably the most important figure in the entire Old Testament. Right? And because Genesis 1 through 11 tell the story of the corruption of sin in humanity, that human society is in this downward death spiral of violence and injustice, and just, it is nasty if you go back and read Genesis 1 through 11. And by the time you hit chapter 11, God has just turned the human race over to the gods that they want to pursue. Right? And it's in this mess that the author raises the question, how is God going to fix this? How is he going to set the world right and be faithful to his promise that he would bless humanity again through Eve's offspring? 
And so he calls Abraham out of Babylon, right? This kind of symbolic place of the world and rebellion against God. And it's out of that place, he says, I'm going to call you to a land. I'm going to, uh, through you, there will be a people. And through the people who come from you, there will be an offspring who blesses the whole world again. And so this whole story begins with Abraham, and it begins with God intervening with Abraham outside of the land. There's no temple. They're not in the Holy Land. They're outside of the land. It's in Babylon that God works and meets Abraham. And so it's out of this that we then meet uh, uh, God's promise of a people who would journey through Egypt and be slaves and we begin to see the partial fulfillment of his promise through Isaac and Jacob and then the 12 patriarchs. And then we turn the corner to verses 9 through 16 and we see the story of Joseph who's sold into slavery by his brothers. This is the son of Jacob. And he got played uh, as the favorite and all the other brothers did not care for this. And so they decided, let's kill him. And another brother intervened and said, now just throw him into a pit and throw, sell him to slave traders. I don't know about you, but I might take death over that. Uh, but again, we're not in control. God was in control of the story. And through the rejection of Joseph's brothers, what happened? Joseph becomes a ruler in Egypt, and during a time of famine, Joseph is the one who delivers Abraham's family, his brothers, by providing their needs and providing food. And at the end of his story, we see him forgiving his brothers who rejected him. So what we're getting is God works outside of the land, And he sends a deliverer who Israel rejects. Does this sound familiar? Right? Okay. And then verses 17 through 29, we see the story of Moses part one where he's born in Egypt and the king of Egypt no longer remembers Joseph and all that he's done for him. And he enslaves and oppresses the people of Israel. But God sovereignly arranges for Moses to live in Pharaoh's own house. In other words, God actually raises up a deliverer to free Israel within the house of Pharaoh himself. But Moses, in his attempt to uh, free Israel by his own strength, ends up getting caught and rejected, and so he flees. And then we find him in chapter 7, verse 30. Let me just pick up here. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him. That's Moses. He's out in the wilderness. He's tried saving the people, and instead he's just become a murderer and a wanted man. So he's kind of given up on the salvation project. So he's out there. He's alone. Uh, 40 years had passed, an angel appears to him in the wilderness on Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look at it, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Now then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. In other words, take off your shoes, you're home. It's actually intimacy that Moses found. And I've Surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. God sees and can be moved by what's happening with us. He's not just transcendent. He's imminent. He's close at hand. And so he hears the groaning, and I've come down to deliver them. Now, come, I will send you to Egypt. I love this, by the way. I will deliver them, and who ends up delivering them? Moses. So God says, I'm going to do something, and how he chooses to do it is through a human mediator. Keep that category in your mind as we read the story. Next, uh, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. 
this man led him out performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. And this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Pause there. So far in the story, we have God. He's already intervened. He's intervened outside of the temple and outside of the land, and he sends deliverers who keep getting rejected. And then he promises through kind of the main dude that there's going to be another person like him who fits the Moses category. Look out for that person. Okay? Are you with me? This story's going somewhere. Okay. There's a payoff at the end. We'll get to the practical stuff, but just hang with Stephen through his sermon. All right. So this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and we're talking about Moses still, with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. In other words, there's instruction. God had instruction. There's a way to live life that's best. Follow this way. Um, Our fathers refused to obey, right? They didn't see the wisdom. Uh, And they thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. They said, we actually prefer slavery to freedom. Because when there's slavery, uh, we're not responsible for our choices, right? And so they turned to Egypt in their hearts, saying to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. He's taken a long time, okay? Uh, because he's with God, you'd take a long time too, I think, all right? And so they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Another human impulse. Look what I've done, right? Um, I mean, you think of like Tom Hanks, right, making a fire. I have made fire. We're so proud of what we accomplish. And like we're made to rejoice in the fruit of our labor. However, it becomes an idol dangerously fast, doesn't it? Like, look at what I have performed and how I do. And so I'm standing and putting all of my security and my value on the work of my hands, right? Rather than the work of God's grace given to me. And so they say, verse 42, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. That's a whole nother sermon. But uh, anyways, as it was written in the book of the prophets, and then he quotes Amos chapter five, not famous Amos the cookie guy, but Amos the prophet. Uh, And he says, did you bring... To me, slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40, days, or 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel. In other words, did you worship me? Was I first in your heart? This is God speaking to Israel. Was I really the one who captured your affections? Uh, no, you actually took up the tent of Molech, who is uh, the Canaanite god who demanded child sacrifice. Nasty god, okay? Uh, and the star of your god, Raphan. Uh, so again, another kind of celestial being that they worshipped and the, the images that you made to worship. And so I'll send you into exile beyond Babylon. I'll give you what you want, in other words. Okay? Uh, our fathers had the tent of witness. That's that tabernacle, that place where God chose in the, to make his presence known. In the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, uh, directed him to make, according to the pattern that he had seen. In other words, God says, here's how I want you to worship me I'm gonna, and set it up this way. Our fathers, in turn, brought it uh, into the land with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. And then he quotes scripture again, and he says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 66. Um, what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? 
Did not my hand make all these things? In other words, God can't be contained or confined in a space that you build. Next verse. So now he closes down his sermon. Um, and you'll be thankful that we always end at the table because I don't end sermons this way. But, um, but this is how Stephen ended. So, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Circumcision is the sign of a covenant arrangement and a relationship between God and his people. And so he's saying, you don't actually have the promise of God possessing your heart, right? That at the deepest part of you, you're not in relationship with God in that way. So he says, you're stiff-necked. You won't turn where God wants you to. Your heart's uncircumcised. Your ears are too. Like, that's kind of an interesting word picture. Uh, And then he says... You always resist the Holy Spirit. That's the punchline. You're resisting where God's been taking this story. As your fathers did, so do you. In other words, everything that you're doing right now is just consistent with who Israel's always been. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Isaiah's language for God, uh, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Who's he talking about? Jesus. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. The word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God. Sermon closed. All right. So that's how he ends his sermon. This is the message. What is Stephen saying? The point that he's been getting at, I want to make this quick here, is that he's been driving at the reality that God has chosen to relate to his people and to rescue humanity. And, and, and so God who is transcendent and above all and can't be confined in a box or a tent or a temple or to one specific land, says that transcendent God still chose to relate. He appeared to Abraham. He worked through Joseph's life and through Moses' life. And he was present and he rescued But Israel has consistently and continually rejected God's efforts to relate and to rescue. So just pause right here. In our own lives, there is a God, we believe, that he is creator, that he is transcendent, he is above all of us, and he chooses to relate and he wants to rescue. But there is a temptation and a a human uh, proclivity to reject God's efforts to relate and to rescue. Israel is just a case study. And Israel has forgotten her own idolatry and unfaithfulness. In other words, I actually, as a human in rebellion from God, my temptation is to look out and blame rather than look in and take ownership. Can I get an amen, wives? (laughs) Yeah, uh, guilty as charged. This weekend, right? Um, So... So God has been faithful, though, to provide a mediator. In fact, the way the story has unfolded is always setting up a category for how God's going to work in the future. And so he calls Abraham, sets up a category. Through a family, there's going to be a deliverer. He calls Joseph. There's a ruler, a king, who will be forgiving to his brothers and sisters who reject him. And then we get to Moses, who's like this... Um, prophet who brings God's truth. And he says, there's going to be another prophet like me. Look out for him. And then there's this whole temple thing that there's God's presence and that requires priests who represent the people to God and God to the people. So there's going to be this priest 
who's going to come. And so there's somebody who fits the category of a gracious ruler who forgives, a king, a, a strong priest who intercedes like Moses did, right? a, a priest, and a prophet who tells the truth like Amos and Isaiah and all these others did. And so the whole Bible has been building to this climactic moment where we meet the mediator who comes to bring God's relationship and rescue into our lives. He's the mediator who brings us into God's presence. And so the whole story is always pointing to the mediator. Let me just stop right here. This might, if you're new to the Bible or if you're, you're not a Christian, or you've maybe had a minimal experience in the church, I understand that this all sounds crazy. Like, it, let's just own that. Like, this sounds, this is intense, right? Um, I get that the Bible doesn't read like the normal news you read. The normal news you read is, good news, there's an iOS update, right? That's, that's the normal news for us as a culture. But in the ancient world... We're dealing with a narrative of epic proportions that actually accounts, I would argue, for the widest array of human experience. And if you don't agree with me today, that's totally okay. I would encourage you to just simply give it a go, read the book cover to cover, and see where it takes you. See if it begins to make sense as a story and make sense of your experience. Um, and see, the, the point of the Bible has never been religion, your performance for God, nor has it been irreligion, just humans doing whatever they want. Both routes end in greater human misery. This is abundantly clear in the biblical story. And so what the Bible is saying, look, if you really want to have transcendence, the transcendent presence of God come down into your life, it's not going to come through intense experiences, which is our culture's way of doing it right? If I go have really intensely good food and drink, I will feel like I've encountered the transcendent. If I'm a part of, uh, if the Dodgers win and I'm there, like that would feel transcendent, but they're losing and it stinks. So um, it's not good. Um, transcendent for somebody in Boston probably, but we don't care about them. They're on the East Coast. And so um, we're focused on the mission of God in Beaverton and maybe LA. So um, anyway, and so we we look for transcendence by achieving utopia and making things easy and simple. We look for transcendence today in our modern-day temples of gyms and restaurants and nature, vacations, sex, whatever. Like, we think that we're going to achieve transcendence. And the Bible's saying you're not going to come in contact with the transcendent through your own effort. What you need is a mediator. What you need is someone who will bring God's transcendence into your life. And the Bible's been saying we're made for a relationship and our lack of connection to God and his transcendence is coming from a relational estrangement, not a lack of intense experiences. It's actually coming from something deep embedded within us as humans. And so we need to be reconciled to this God through his mediator. It's through a savior that we can actually have lives that work along the grains of the universe. But the problem of sin is that we bend away from the grain of the universe, that we bend away towards loves that are disordered, from, by, uh, bend away by desire that is bent out of order. And so the Savior who loves us and enters relationship with us delivers us by also reordering our loves, by turning us from self-focused creatures to creatures who turn outward and receive the grace and the light of the Savior. And so Stephen says, you are a stiff-necked people. You're always resisting the Spirit. And the text 
here is saying that they heard these things and they were enraged and they ground their teeth, which is a sign of violent rage. And here's the point of contrast that I want you to see today. There's this contrast between the, the, the messenger, the person who is a witness, and the people who are rejecting the message. There's an enormous point of contrast. The reality of being a witness to Jesus means that it actually brings transformation in our life. And so here's the thing that we see in Stephen's story. We see, um, well, let me read the text to you. Verse uh, 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out in a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him. They're going to stone him. Uh, And then they cast him out of the city, they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We're going to meet more of him in a couple of chapters. And... As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice and said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. There's three things I want to show you here at the end of this text where what we see is the outcome of our witness. What being a witness to the reality of Jesus actually does in your life. It's transforming. Two things, or three things. The first is this, that we see the transformation that comes by means of the Holy Spirit. That the, the, the people who are accusing him are, are resisting the Spirit, but it describes Stephen as full of the Spirit. And when you're a Christian, what you get is divine help. You actually get God working in your life. His reality comes into your life, and you're no longer a natural person with your own effort and devices to lean on. What you have is the Spirit of God who makes you a new creature. And so... Um, It's amazing to me that he's characterized by the Spirit in crisis. I have to admit to you that under stress, I am not always defaulting towards the Spirit. So often, I want to default and just simply do default to my natural tendencies in the flesh, which comes out really rude oftentimes and self-absorbed. But what the Spirit does in us is he actually enables us to take pressure And what comes out is actually stuff that's more like Jesus than our old selves because we're new creatures. And this is a progressive work. Um, Literarily, there's this thing that Luke has done that's amazing. He's showing you that Stephen is a parallel to Jesus. Um, One guy I read this week shows 10 parallels between Stephen and Jesus. I'll just put them up on the screen if you want them. I'll send it to you by email later. Um, But it's interesting to me that there are... Um, there's a trial before a high priest, there's a bunch of false witnesses, there's a testimony concerning the destruction of the temple, uh, and then on and on and on, right? A charge of blasphemy, a high priest question, uh, there's a committal of the Spirit, I give my spirit to you, right? And then there's a cry with a loud voice, and then there's an intercession for enemies, right? There's this pattern. What's Luke doing? He's saying, Stephen's just like Jesus, And this is the work of the transformation that comes. When you have the Spirit of God in your life, He doesn't just make you, like, have all of your dreams come true, but He does make you into a Jesus-like person, right? Which is actually our deepest desire if we're new creatures. So through the Spirit, we become more like Jesus. The second thing we see is the point of contrast that these people want to destroy Stephen. What does Stephen want? Father, forgive them! 
forgive them. In other words, he's interceding. He's advocating for them. When you're a Christian, you become somebody who intercedes on the behalf of other people. You care deeply about other people. And, it, and the way this often manifests in our lives is through prayer. I begin to pray for my neighbor who beforehand just drove me nuts. Now I actually see him as a person in need of a mediator, of somebody who needs rescue in the relationship of God. And so we contend for other people in prayer, and we contend for them in relationship. We become intercessors. We can release the outcomes to the Father, and we ask for blessing. And then the last thing, there's this contrast between the fearful violence of the accusers and the peaceful death of Stephen. In other words, when you're a Christian, you can both live and die at peace. I love the surprising language here, that he just, he simply falls asleep. Do you see that? It's like, wow, it seems like a really violent story. And then the outcome is he just falls asleep, because that's what happens when you have the peace of God. When you have the peace of God in your life, you can handle death, actually. John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. When we have Jesus, we have his life, and that is a life that is indomitable. More on that another time. But underneath all of this is the heart of the gospel. What is, G- what is Stephen's vision that enables him to be a person who is full of the Spirit, who intercedes for others, and who is actually at peace even in death? What enables him to do that? I think it's his vision of Jesus. He sees, I'll go to this next verse, we already read it, but he's full of the Spirit and he's gazing into heaven and he sees the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he says, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Underneath all of who Stephen is, is his vision of who Jesus is. It's actually the reality that Jesus alone, standing on behalf of Stephen, is what gives him this kind of courage and this kind of peace. When you understand the language of Jesus standing at the throne of God, it's judgment language. What Jesus is doing is he's, he is the just judge who's already been judged for Stephen. And so he's already up in heaven advocating and interceding for Stephen. And when you understand that Jesus is your mediator, that he stands in your place, that he stood condemned for you, and that now he stands interceding for you, it turns you into a different kind of person. He has you in a way that gives you peace and that enables you to stand and intercede for others because you've been interceded for. He's contending for you. And he offers that kind of life to you. And you can reject it or you can receive it. But Stephen has received it and he has this kind of angelic peace and calm, a non-anxious posture, and a clear understanding of who God is as a mediator through Jesus. And so that's where we end today. We end at the tables because we come and we celebrate that we have a mediator, that we, like Israel, have run our own way, and we've rejected God. And he says, actually, I'm like Joseph. I forgive my brothers. Actually, I'm like Moses. I intercede for you. Actually, I'm the God who stands at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf. If you have a God like that, what else can threaten you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we find at the tables when we find the reality of your goodness expressed 
and materiality of a bread, piece of bread and cup, that in that we are reminded of what it cost you to be our advocate, what it cost you to be our intercessor, that we stand in you. And because of that, we are able to be like Stephen in all of the ways that he was a witness to you. So God, enable us as your church to have a clear vision of who you are so that we would be faithful witnesses. We come to the table and we ask you, Lord, to just stir our hearts again and remind us through this celebration of who we are because of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.